As Jesus wrapped up his portion of his Sermon on the Mount last week, he said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' point in that, and where he's going with the rest of his Sermon on the Mount, is to help us realize that while the Pharisees and Sadducees had it all put together on the outside, they were very corrupt on the inside. Their hearts did not function the way their outward actions seemed to portray. And Jesus is saying, you need to be more righteous than them. He's saying, not even they are righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. They need more righteousness. Where does this righteousness come from? How is this righteousness achieved? It's probably the question that people are asking themselves. They look to the scribes and Pharisees as the ones who had it figured out. And Jesus is saying, no, even more. And Jesus' point in all of this, where he's going with all of this, of course, is what we just saw in First and Second Samuel. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. It's the inner man that God cares about because the outer man is simply what is portrayed from the inner person. We can have it put together. We can have ourselves contained. We can have ourselves figured out and portray that pretty well to those around us. But eventually, at points in our life, the innerness comes boiling out. Sometimes when we're tired, distracted, hungry, or just stressed and weak. Secondly, the reason I feel inadequate to preach this message is really the, the point Jesus is going to make in this particular section of his sermon, because in it, he's going to address something that I've personally struggled with probably more than any other area of my life. Jesus starts out kind of throwing everyone a softball. He's going to start out talking about murder, right? And, and everybody in the crowd, they're not in jail for murder. They haven't killed anybody. They're probably going, I got this part of the law down pat. But Jesus, of course, turns it on their head immediately, as we will see. He's going to show us that the scribes and the Pharisees are no better than they, everyone thinks they are, and we are all far worse than we could ever imagine. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, if you're not already there. Jesus is going to say some things in this passage and in the following ones, the next few weeks, that on the surface are, are very bold. He's going to say something like, you have heard it was said... And then he's going to say, but I tell you. And, and what he's quoting, you have heard it was said, is scripture. These are God's words, right? We, we saw the power of that in our sermon last week, how we need to uphold scripture to the highest standard and submit ourselves to it. And Jesus is saying, this is what you've heard. This is what it says. But let me tell you what it means. Jesus is putting himself as the ultimate interpreter of scripture, so let's take a look in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying they've been cheapening the law. 
They've been obeying it at a very, very, very surface level, but the real heart of the matter is not merely whether someone winds up dead, but whether or not our, our hearts are capable of making it so. Murder is the worst thing you can do to someone. Everything else you do to someone, there's a chance of redemption, there's a, a chance of recovery from, there's a chance of healing and reconciliation, but murder is final, especially for those who don't know the Lord. For us to live as Christ and to die as gain, but for one who doesn't know God, murder ends it all. But you know what else deserves judgment besides murder? Our anger does. And Jesus is saying that anger is just as bad as murder. Undealt with anger is as bad as murder. In God's view of things, a murderer is no worse than someone who holds anger in his heart against another person. The, the, the anger that Jesus is speaking about here includes flippant anger, but is especially focused on anger that we hold on to, anger that we make last, that we don't want to let go of. Oftentimes, it leads to things we call resentment and bitterness. How many times have we told ourselves that we hate someone? Maybe we don't say the words out loud, but we've thought it in our hearts. Perhaps we've even said the words audibly or internally, I wish you were dead. If you haven't said them, you probably have thought them or something like them at some point in your life. Maybe they were directed toward a politician, a neighbor, a boss, a coworker, a classmate, perhaps even a family member. Have you ever wished someone were dead or maybe not dead, but maybe severely punished physically or financially? I know I have. Now, did I mean it? In the moment, probably. Afterward, I regretted it. After reflection, I thought, man, what, was I crazy in that moment? But in those moments when my blood was boiling, I wanted them punished. I wanted them gone. I wanted them destroyed. I did want it. The wrongness of murder is, is anchored in the fact that we are made in the image of God. Jesus, uh, God tells Moses after they leave the ark that, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God created man in his own image. So, so he grounds it right there. To murder someone is to, to offend God directly by killing someone who bears his image. And what Jesus is saying here is we're not giving honor, we're not showing respect, we're not loving someone who bears the image of God when we show anger and hold bitterness and resentment against them. Despising someone made in God's image, in God's eyes, is the same as murder. This internal sin of anger is then taken by Jesus to almost comical levels. If, if Jesus maybe was known for, some, for cracking some jokes, people maybe thought, think, would think he's joking here when he states that words spoken in anger, calling someone a name, an idiot, or a fool, is the same as same guilt level as murder. Friends, Jesus is saying our words reveal our murderous hearts. There, there's a saying, if looks could kill. You've probably heard that. Maybe you've said it. A lot of times it's said in jest, right? Ooh, if looks could kill. But the intent behind that 
perfectly captures Jesus' point. The look someone gives that could kill is a look that is full of anger and spite and loathing, no matter how temporary that may hang on, that the intent of the heart is clear. The look they are giving you in that moment is saying loud and clear, I wish you were dead. It may be worse if I could make it happen and get away with it, I would. Later in Matthew, Jesus asks, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure bring forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure bring forth, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Friends, Jesus is saying words matter, as much as our actions. They reveal what is going on in our hearts. When you speak evil, it's a warning that something is not right inside you. You've got heart work to do. You've got heart surgery to do. Jesus is implying that words can kill, at least in a spiritual sense. They're as bad as murder in his eyes. Insults and name-calling are damnable offenses. Now, can you imagine if human laws were shaped around God's views of sin? If you could go to jail or, or be put on death row for calling someone an idiot, almost everyone on Twitter and Facebook would at some point be guilty of that crime. Friends, we are much worse than we could ever imagine. And our sin is so great, even what we would call harmless insults or write off as minor offenses grieve the heart of a holy God. And they stir the wrath of a righteous God. We're not more righteous than the Pharisees. We're not more righteous than the scribes. We can never get there on our own. Our anger alone and our responses to it, our actions through it, are enough to condemn us. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, Jesus has a lot more to say. That's not the end of the message. Thanks be to God. He's about to tell us what to do when we find ourselves in this state, when we find ourselves angry or we know that someone else is angry with us. But before we get there, I want to point out that Jesus isn't calling all anger sin. Okay, He's especially talking about Anger that's ongoing, anger that's going to lead to sinful action, anger that's harbored, anger that leads to outbursts, to, to physical responses of anger in some way. That's the, the, the primary anger he's addressing here because anger is a God-given emotion. Anger, like our other emotions, are good things. They're, they're, they're in a way, neutral. They can be good, they can be bad, but often the problem with Emotions like angers, we often use them for evil. We often use them poorly. Instead of using our emotions like anger as a thermometer, as something that should tell us what's going on inside, to, to kind of tell us where our internal temperature is, we instead use our emotions like anger as a thermostat. And we crank it up, and we crank up our hearts to levels they were never meant to reach. Ephesians 4 tells us this. This is how we know sin or anger itself is not a sin. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger 
and give no opportunity to the devil. What, what, what Paul is saying is that anger has potential for bad. We need to deal with it right away. But in and of itself is not bad, but it can lead to some disastrous things. There are things we should be angry about. We should be angry about sin. We should be angry about the effects of sin. We should be angry about injustices in the world. But we should not use our anger to do something about it. We should use our anger to motivate us. And once we have put our anger aside, then we can respond in righteous ways to seek justice, to right wrongs, to help the hurting, to stop oppression. But we should not let our anger consume us. We cannot let our anger last. We must act quickly to resolve our anger because, as Paul said, the danger is if we don't act quickly, if we let it delay, if we hang on to it, the real danger is the devil has an opportunity to use it for his evil purposes. Holding on to your anger makes you an easy target. Jesus gives a great example for us when he is angry, uh, when he goes into the temple and clears it out. You guys remember this story? It's in multiple of the Gospels. And I've always used this as an opportunity to somewhat justify my quick responses that would be angry and be like, well, Jesus, even Jesus got angry. Now, he did it in a righteous way, right? And I got to work on maybe, maybe how I respond in anger. But the reality is, is that I don't think Jesus went from zero to angry and acted. And what brought this view crashing down for me was when I was reading the Gospel of Mark, Mark's account of Jesus driving everyone out of the temple. You see, he starts with the, the, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, where everyone's laying the palm branches down, and, and Jesus rides in on the colt, and everyone's excited for Jesus' arrival. And, and it, it says that he comes in, he goes to the temple, he has a look around, but it says he's late. It's, it's late in the day, and he decides he's just going to go back to his friend's house in Bethany for a little rest and relaxation. And then the next morning, the next day, after he's had a night of sleep, he comes back, and that's when he cleans house. That's when he drives everyone out of the temple. Jesus didn't snap in his anger. He went home. I'm guessing he put his anger aside and decided what he was going to do about it. I'm guessing he spent the night in prayer like we see so many times him doing, seeking counsel from the Father and fellowship with the Father, figuring out what is the best way to respond to this injustice of God's house being treated like a marketplace. And then he goes in, then he overturns the tables, then he snaps the whip. And I don't think he was angry when he did it. I think he put that aside and he was using that anger as a response, a righteous response to the injustice he saw. And so that came crumbling down for me. Jesus isn't a scapegoat for our anger. He's the ultimate measuring stick for how we should respond when we feel ourselves boiling up with anger. We're told in Scripture, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Friends, I would submit to us today that it is nearly impossible for us to respond to something or someone in anger and do it in a righteous way. Instead, we must let our anger be an alarm that alerts us 
to an injustice, to something that needs to be addressed, and then we must act quickly to calm ourselves down, to collect ourselves so that we can righteously address that problem. In contrast, Jesus is telling us that anger unresolved isn't just sin deserving of judgment, it's a dangerous situation that can lead to all kinds of harm for ourselves and for others. But friends, Jesus doesn't leave us in judgment. He, he doesn't just leave us wallowing in the fact that we are sinful failures in deserving uh, judgment. Jesus isn't trying, trying to make us feel bad. That's never Jesus' intent, to leave us feeling bad about our sin. Of course, he's telling us what's wrong and what's dangerous and what needs to be corrected in our lives so that we can do something to stop the devastating effects of it. It's like a a commentator I read this week puts it, every angry incident is a fresh call to conversion. Every angry incident, every time your blood starts boiling internally, maybe you look as cool as a cucumber on the outside, but internally, internally your, 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 your insides are churning, you're ready to explode, or, or you've just figured out how to just simply compartmentalize it and do this just little hatred in your heart for that other person. Every time that happens, every time you feel those indicators of anger in your life, it's a fresh call to conversion. It's a fresh call to go back to the thing you did when you first met Jesus and confess and lay it all out before him, and do, as we saw in the first beatitude, be poor in spirit. It's an invitation to be poor in spirit, to fall on our knees before him once again and say, I am more wretched than I ever would have thought. Lord, I need you because I cannot do this on my own. When I am left to myself, I am as destructive as the next person. I just have enough sense not to pull the trigger or slash with a knife, or whatever else. Jesus doesn't want us to continue in our sin, so he shows us the places sin is rooted in our lives so that we can begin to root it out. That's the job of a house inspector, right? You buy a home, you you hire someone to go into the home and and look it over and, and find out where the problems are so they can be addressed before you spend tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest in that property. And so you, you hire this inspector, and the good ones, they're going to go below the surface. They're going to kind of look where maybe the average guy doesn't, and, and they're going to begin to see where there's maybe some indicators of some hidden rot and hidden decay so that it doesn't cost you in the long term. Because if those aren't addressed, you're going to end up paying a lot on the other end. And so Jesus tells us to address conflict between you and another person so that it doesn't lead to bigger problems, so it doesn't lead to costly relationship costs. See, conflict is, is just hidden evidence of our anger. Conflict is when I want something and someone else wants something and we want what we want and we want to get it without regard to what the other person needs or wants. That's what James tells us. What causes quarrels and fights among us? Is it not our passions that wage war against each other? And so Jesus, knowing this, knowing that anger is an issue for us, knowing that, that, that these, these feelings inside of us of frustration with other people and what they've done to us 
can be so damaging for us. He gives us two little steps of obedience, two little things where we can begin to deal with these problems in our lives, to to root it out to prevent further damage. Take a look in verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. If the first step to dealing with our anger is to become poor in spirit about it, the second step is to to go back to the Beatitudes again and to meekly and mercifully and humbly make peace with the one you have conflict with or with the one who has conflict with you. Essentially, Jesus is reminding us that disciples are peacemakers. Disciples are peacemakers. You'll notice that Jesus gives two scenarios in which we're to make peace. He's using these situations, one where there's a brother in mind, probably either a family member or a close friend, someone they have fellowship with. Like for us, it would be those in the church, those who know and love the Lord, that would be considered a brother. And then secondly, with an accuser, it doesn't matter who it is, just somebody out in public who might accuse you, take you to court over something. It doesn't matter whether a friend or foe, no one is outside the scope of needing to make reconciliation with. It's like the Apostle Paul tells us, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. In these examples, Jesus not only informs us that everyone in every situation is a peacemaking opportunity, But he also points out the priority we need to have in reconciliation and the speed with which we must do it. We must resolve conflict with others as a priority over everything else and as quickly as possible. So first, reconciliation is most important. It's most important. It takes top priority. Jesus is saying that nothing is more important than being reconciled to someone you have an issue with. Nothing is more important. Now, how can I say that? How how do I know that to God, to Jesus, reconciliation is more important than everything else you can possibly do? Well, it's because Jesus tells us that reconciliation to others is more important, at least to our brothers and sisters in Christ, than worshiping God. Notice he says... If you, see, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, you've offended them, they're upset at you, they're angry at you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. You know what? Put your worship of God aside. Hold off on that. This is more important. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, That may seem a little weird to us. We don't make offerings the same way the Israelites did, but I want to put this in context for you of what they probably would have been thinking. See, this is the Sermon on the Mount. This isn't the Sermon in Jerusalem. This is outside of Jerusalem, a day's journey at least, if not multiple days' journey 
from Jerusalem where they would go and take their offering and offer it on the altar. And so you have to have in mind, this is essentially what Jesus is saying is, hey, you know, you go offer your offering, you're taking a vacation. We all know how much work it is to pack for a vacation. And you're going to pack up all your things that you need to make this multiple day journey on your camel, on your donkey, or, or by foot. And you're going to make your way to Jerusalem. And then once you get there, you're going to stand in line and wait your turn to offer your offering. Kind of like going to Disneyland and standing in line. They didn't have fast pass back then. And, and then you get up there and it's your turn. You've done all of this and then it strikes you. My relationship with my neighbor, my relationship with my friend, my relationship with whoever I left back home isn't good. We had that big, that we had that heated argument before I left. That was wrong. I need to make things right. And so what Jesus is saying, after all of that, you just leave your offering there and you head back home. Now I'm thinking as an efficient person, as a practical person, let's just like offer the offering and, and, and decide in your heart that you're going to go back home and reconcile. And Jesus is saying, no, it's more important for you to just turn around, make reconciliation happen, and then, then you can repeat all that. You can double the cost of the trip. You can double the time invested in the trip. You, you can double everything, the cost away from work and friends and family, because reconciliation is more important than all of that. Reconciliation is the most important thing. And I think what Jesus is really saying here is that, you know, you can go through the ritual of worshiping God, but reconciling with others is in and of itself an act of worship. That's glorifying to God, reconciling to others. It honors him far more than us enjoying a religious experience. And to make it even more challenging is you don't have to be the one that's angry. You don't have to be the one who's upset. Jesus is saying that if you think the other person is angry at you, then reconciliation is so important that if you realize this is the case, then you need to make the effort to make the peace because you offended, or maybe you didn't, but you know that they think you offended them. It's not, it's not the time to accuse and go point fingers. It's the time to humbly go and say, hey, I think you're upset with me. Can we work through this? Can we figure out what's going on? And that might mean eating some humble pie. But you know what? That's okay, because as we're learning, as disciples of Jesus, we need to get really good at being poor in spirit. We need to be really good at mourning our own faults and failures. Because as we're told over and over again in Scripture, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, as I think I've admitted before, I'll make it clear now, I really struggle with this. I'll be the first to admit that I have a lot of room to grow in this in my own life. I do poorly at prioritizing reconciliation. It takes me time to work up the courage to admit my faults. I'm quick to justify or rationalize a situation. Let me, let me, let me take you through my thought process sometimes. So sometimes I'll, I'll just, I'll just kind of write it off as like, hey, I sent a text or I... I I wrote a card apologizing, and I'm good to go, right? I, I, I made the effort, and it, it's, in, it's in their hands now, right? And I'll just kind of go through that thought process for a while. Sometimes I'll, I'll say, you know what? It wasn't really that big of a deal, and they're a really gracious person. They're, they're just, they're full of the Spirit. 
They love the Lord. They're just going to forgive because that's what God's called them to. So I'm just going to sweep it under the rug with them. Or, or sometimes I tell myself that, you know what, there probably, there probably isn't anything going on between us. It seems like it, but maybe I'm just reading the situation wrong. I'm just going to let, let, let things kind of go and just see how they end up. Perhaps worst of all, sometimes I'll convince myself that what I did to them maybe offended them. And if I did offend them, it really wasn't all that bad. And they shouldn't be upset about it. And it's just really their fault if they're upset. But Jesus is saying that he'd rather us make sure that we're at peace with others than to assume that we are at peace with others. He'd rather us make sure we're at peace with others than go on with our worship. I think the real implication for us is that reconciliation should happen daily. Like we saw in Ephesians chapter 4, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the sun go down before you reconcile. Make sure that you are good. Why do I say that? Because we regularly say here, all of life is worship. We regularly say everything we do can be glorifying to God, right? Everything we do can be an offering of praise to him. We can be a living sacrifice, living our life to honor and praise him. And so if every day is an opportunity to make an offering to God, then every day should be a priority for reconciliation. We should quickly, perhaps even immediately, seek reconciliation because we're continually offering ourselves to worship, to God in worship. And so we see that not only is reconciliation most important, it's also the most urgent thing. It's both important and urgent. There's a saying, uh, the uh, urgent drives out the important. Hey, have you experienced that before? You're in a conversation with somebody and your phone rings. And what do you do? You, you grab your phone or it dings. Nobody calls anymore, right? It te- you, get the, you get the text ding. And immediately you stop what you're doing with that person and you grab your phone because the urgent is driving out the important conversation you're having here. But Jesus is saying, away with that because reconciliation is both important and urgent. It's the most important, and it's the most urgent. That's Jesus' second point. As we noticed earlier, we're to be reconciled to fellow believers, but also with our opponent, with an enemy. Jesus is using legal language here, right? He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to court. There's a judge, there's a guard, there's, there's prison involved. He's saying that if you're in a legal dispute with someone, quickly take care of it between you and them rather than getting others involved, rather than getting the courts involved. Ultimately, make reconciliation because if you don't, it can be really, really, really costly to you. Unreconciled anger is costly. We see this all the time, don't we? I'm not just talking about financial repercussions. You might get sued for something you did or didn't do. But the reality is that unreconciled relationships lead to strained or broken relationships, broken friendships, broken families, broken marriages, broken churches. How many families and churches are going to be destroyed before we take Jesus seriously here, before we take him at his word? 
What kind of collateral damage could we prevent if we humbled ourselves like Jesus did and like he calls us to do and make peace with those around us? Oh, that we would take Jesus seriously this morning. Oh, that we would not let petty things divide us. Oh, that we would not let petty things become big things that crush us just because we don't want to be humble and admit that we're human, that we're flawed. God has no problem telling us that. Let us take Jesus seriously, that our sins against one another are serious, and they should not be dwelled on, but they also shouldn't be swept under the rug. We need to address our issues and concerns with one another. We need to share and talk about them. We need to get them out in the open, put them on the table, admit our wrongs to each other, be open and honest with each other on the hurts that we cause each other so that we can forgive, just as Christ has forgiven us. Because here's the deal. I don't think, I don't think that Jesus is only talking about the reconciliation and the, uh, the, the accuser here in merely human terms. If we think about the bigger picture here, we recognize that, as Jesus is pointing out, we're not righteous like the scribes and Pharisees, externally or internally, and we all stand before God, guilty. Jesus is pointing out that, hey, look, even your careless words make you guilty, and we're just scratching the surface here today. Because we're going to see in the weeks, maybe anger isn't your issue, but I can guarantee in the next few weeks, if you stick with us here, you're going to see that there's something that Jesus is going to address or a principle behind what he's going to address that all of us, it reveals all of us and shines a light on some kind of sin in our life. The truth of the matter is that we are all guilty before God and that only righteousness, pure righteousness will set us free. We owe a debt Uh, uh, to the pain and suffering that sin has caused, that we have caused, and we have no way to pay it back. There's no hope of getting ourselves out of this jam. No hope for us in and of ourselves. But you know what the beauty of it is? I I know many of you do. I I think you know where I'm going with this. Here's, Here's the beauty of it all. Jesus did for us exactly what he's calling us to do. And he provides for us what we cannot provide for ourselves, and he provides it on our behalf when we reconcile ourselves to others. He, Jesus calls us to go to our brother when they have something against us. But you know what Jesus did? He came to us when he had something against us. In Colossians 2, 21 and 22 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We don't have to be righteous like the scribes and Pharisees because Jesus makes us righteous by his actions. Thanks be to God that Jesus came for us when we were at fault, yet he made it possible for us to be reconciled to him when we wanted no part of it. We were his enemy, yet he did what was necessary to save us. Romans tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that that Jesus reconciled himself to us and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
We're to be reconcilers. We're to be peacemakers. We're to go to others with that message. Extend it, not just on Jesus' behalf, but mutually on each other's behalf. Friends, we owed a great debt. One we could never afford to pay off. And while we're, we're still rebelling and hostile to God, he decided he would do exactly what Jesus is now calling us to do. He reached out to us so that we could be made right with him. Now, here's one difference. Jesus didn't leave his, his offering at the altar. He didn't leave his sacrifice at the altar. He became the sacrifice on the altar. So it only makes sense, doesn't it? It's only fitting that we would imitate our great Savior. He called us to be salt and light, to show the world what God is like, not just by telling them, but by imitating him in every way, especially in reconciliation. And in doing so, we prevent anger from destroying us and others. Well, friends, today we have a great opportunity for application. A lot of times you have to leave the room before you can apply the sermon, but not today. Because today's the day we're scheduled to take communion. It's the first Sunday of the month, something we can look forward to. We do it other times as well, but typically the first Sunday of the month is one we can expect and rely upon. And when we celebrate communion, we come as close as we do in modern times to offering something at the altar. Because by eating the bread and drinking the cup, we reflect on Jesus' final sacrifice on our behalf. We're accepting his offering for us. We call it communion, the Lord's Supper, but the dictionary says that the word communion means the sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. So when we celebrate communion, we're coming together and we're sharing in something that's intimate, that's special. That's what we do. We share in what Jesus did. Communion is meant to bring us together, and it's hard to be joined as one when there are known differences between us, when when there's conflict between us, when there are problems between you and another believer that you are participating in worship with. You know, in the, in the early days of the church, they met in much smaller groups and shared meals together and would often literally break the bread and pass it to the person next to them. It's really hard to fellowship with someone that intimately when there's something between you. One of the things I tell uh, engaged couples when I'm preparing them for marriage is that they should begin a habit, especially once they're married, if not before, to pray together every day. To pray together every day. This is something that uh, my wife and I, Amy, were told to do early in our marriage, and we found huge benefits to it. And so whether you start your day with prayer, you end your day with prayer, wherever in your day you pray together, pray together every day. And, and it's really easy in that first few weeks of marriage, the first few months of marriage, first maybe year of marriage. But then life happens and things get complicated. And when you're in the habit of doing that, you know what's really hard to do? If you're upset at your spouse, if you're frustrated at your spouse, it's really hard to take their hand and pray out loud with them. 